Okay, so I want to set up on a, a new topic today. Uh, and to get us started, I thought we'd play a game. So the game is going to be called Cash in a Hat. And we'll see what this game is like in a minute. So the idea is this. There's going to be two players. I'm going to pick on two of you. Uh, hope, I hope I can find people who've brought some money to class. All right, so player one will have a choice. Player one can put nothing, $1, or $3 into a hat. The hat will then be given to player two. And player two can look at what's in the hat. And either she can match what's in the hat, i.e., add the same amount in, so one if it's one or three if it's three, or she can simply take the cash. All right, the payoffs of this game will be as follows. Uh, player one, if they put nothing in, they're not going to get the thing. If they put one in and it's matched, then they double their money, so they get two back. If they uh, put three in and it's matched, then they double their money, so they get six back, they'll net three. Uh, however, if they put one in and player two takes it, they've just lost their dollar. And if they put three dollars in and player two takes it, they've lost three dollars. Right, everyone, everyone understand that? Pretty simple. From player two's point of view, uh, if player two matches, then they get them, their investment back plus $1.50 if they matched one, so they get $2.50 back in all. And they get their investment back plus $2 if they match three, so that's if they, if they get five back in all. And of course, if they simply take the money out of the hat and put it in their pockets, then that's what they get in the game. Right, so once again, if player two matches with $1, there's $1 on the hat and, and she matches, then she gets back $2.50 for a profit of $1.50. If there's $3 and she matches three, she gets back five for a profit of two. And if she simply takes the money out of, out of the hat and puts it in her pocket, then she gets however much money was in the hat. All right, so I here will be the provider of the hat. We'll use the same hat we used before. And if necessary, I'll provide sheets of paper we can write IOUs on, but I'm hoping we can play for real cash. Uh, later on, it could be nice to get a chair here, but for now, let me just go down here. And uh, I'm going to grab this mic. Uh, who here wants to be player one? Who brought some money to class today? I'm quite willing to pick on somebody. All right, good, good, good. So player one is, uh, what's your name again? Justin. Justin. So hold on to that hat for a second, all right? And uh, who wants to be player two? All right, so this gentleman here, whose name is? Nate. Nate, all right, so we have Justin and Nate. All right, so Justin, you have to decide how much money you're gonna put in the hat. Did you bring some money too, Nate? Uh, Better make sure you have, otherwise borrow some from your neighbors. All right, I'm gonna put in a buck. All right, all right, so the money has been put in the hat and delivered to uh, Nate. And so I, I'm gonna put in the buck too, so that I get. All right, so if we empty out the hat, here's our beautiful pink hat, I really have the hat passed across the room rather than have me do it, but uh, we have $2 in the hat, so I'm going to pay each, I'm going to pay, uh, what am I going to pay? I'm going to pay player one at, uh, at $2, I'm going to give back their original dollar and give them two in a second, and I'm going to pay player two uh, $1.50, just hold the hat, we'll uh, do that for $2.50, right? $2.50, uh, yes, well you've got, you got your money back, trying to, <laughs> trying to cheat you here. Me, is that it? <laughs> All right, so player, I'll, I'll get you the rest in a second. Hang on a second, right, for, for now. And so double the money, all right? All right, all right, so this is a, one reason to take this class is if you play well, you get money. All right, now let's just try again. All right, so we had one round of this. Let's have another round. Who wants to play player one now? 
All right, so uh, uh, Katie is player one, all right. Did Katie bring some money? Yeah, sure. All right, and who wants to be player two? Someone further away, let's have um, uh, Steven, isn't it, is that right? So St Steven's gonna be player two, do you bring some cash? I think so. All right, all right. Otherwise borrow it from your neighbors, I can have IOUs here. So here's the hat. I've only got coins. Oh, you got coins? Oh, oh. All right, all right. Okay, great. So, so pass the hat, pass the hat down. We'll see if it makes it there. Test the honesty of the class here. Working its way down. I'm gonna have to. There we go. Here we go. All the way down to Stephen. Okay. Check how much is in there. There's a dollar in here. There's a dollar there. So you, you can decide whether to match or not. Okay, I'll match it. All right. So Stephen's gonna match as well. All right. Once again, we have this time rather annoyingly a dollar and some coins in here, which I will empty on the stage to prove it to everybody. All right, and I will, I will, mm. all right, there are coins in here, all right? So I'll match this in a second and give it back to you guys. All right, so everyone understand the game? All right, everyone understand how this game worked? So we're gonna spend a while discussing this, and I'll, I, we, we'd go on playing, except I'd eventually lose so much money, I'm gonna run out of lunch money. Uh, the, the TAs would object. All right, so what I wanna do is I wanna analyze this game, I wanna think about what this game's about, what's really going on here, all right? So first, this is just a little game involved putting some money in a hat, but I want to suggest to you that this is a, uh, a toy version of a much more important game. This is a toy version of a game involving a lender and a borrower. So you could think of our player ones here, that was Katie on the second round and, uh, is, it is it Justin on the first round? Yeah. Justin on the first round. As, uh, imagine them working in an investment bank or perhaps in a venture capitalist firm, right? And what they're doing is they're giving a loan to somebody, some budding entrepreneur, who's come up with a new project. So Stephen in round two, and who was my budding entrepreneur in round one? What was your name? Nate. Nate in round one have come up with some budding project. They've, they've left Yale, perhaps after their junior year. They've, just, you know, they've left early because they've got some great idea for something which is going to make them millions. So either it's a new mousetrap or a new version of Facebook or something. And they go to the, oh, that's half, isn't it? So something better than a new version of Facebook, right? And they go to the, this venture capitalist firm. Uh, maybe it, it's some firm in New York or maybe it's the Yale Investment Trust, whatever. And they explain this great idea to them and they ask for some, some money to invest in this firm to buy machinery and to pay early wages and so on, right? And the lender, the lender, the guy who works in the venture capitalist firm has to decide how much money to invest in this project. Right? After, having, uh, after this money has been invested in the project, the person who borrowed it faces choices. They could go forward with their project, work hard, spend the money on the things they're supposed to spend, or they could just disappear to Mexico. <laughs> All right? All right? Go back to Yale for that matter. All right? And there's actually something in, in between they could do, which is less dramatic than disappearing to Mexico. They could just not work particularly hard, shirk, perhaps join, uh, join in someone else's project and just let the money run down without the lender really knowing about it. All right? So this is a very real problem that some of you, some of the budding entrepreneurs in the room, are going to face uh, when you leave Yale. And more of you who are going to end up working for investment banks, perhaps unfortunately, are going to face as well. All right? Okay, so we're going to spend the whole of today analyzing this. But before we even start, let's notice that there's something different about this game, other than its sheer triviality. There's something different about this game than games we've played all the way up to the midterm so far. What's different about this game? What's different? Yeah, can I, um, can I get a mic in, in here? Sorry. Uh, yes, what's different? Uh, 
moves aren't simultaneous? The moves are not simultaneous. This is a sequential move game. Let me put the rules up here. And bring this down. So for the first time, we're looking at a sequential move game. And we're going to spend most of the rest of the term looking at sequential move games, or at least looking at games that involve sequential elements. Now, what's really, what makes this a sequential move game? Let's be careful about this. What makes it a sequential move game is not simply that player one moved first and player two moved second, although that's true. What really made this a sequential move game is that player two knew what player one had done before he got to make his move. It isn't the timing per se that matters. It's going to turn out it's the fact that player two could observe player one's choice before having to make his or her choice that matters. And notice, just while we're on the subject, more than that, player one knew this was going to be the case. All right, so let's just get that down. So in this game, player two knows player one's choice before she chooses, she being player two. Before, let's say before two chooses. All right? And second, player one knows that this will be the case. And the way we dramatize this just now is player one put the money in the hat. The hat was transported across the classroom with people very honestly not stealing the money to player two. Player two could look in the hat, could see how much money was in there before Stephen or Nate had to make their choice. Is that right? All right. So how do we go about analyzing games that have this sequential structure? So it turns out that a useful way to analyze them, and a way I want to get us used to today already, is to draw a tree. So in the first half of the class, we drew a lot of matrices. Now we're going to draw trees. And for those people who haven't seen trees before, it's not a big deal. It's an object that looks like a tree. That's why it's called a tree. All right, so let's have a look. So in this particular game, here is player one making her choice. And in fact, she has three possible choices. She can put nothing, one, or three into the hat. All right. Player two then chooses, although really player two only has choices to make if there's some money in the hat. And player two has two choices in this particular game in either case. Either player two is going to add a dollar or three dollars into the hat, or they're going to disappear off to Mexico, taking our investors' lunch money with them. All right? And let's put down the payoffs, and let's put down as payoffs the net gains they make. All right? So if nothing goes in, no one makes any money. So zero, zero will be the payoff. If one is matched by one, then the investor, the lender, doubles her money. So she makes a net profit of one. If, if, uh, if the money is taken out by player two, then she loses one. All right? Down here, if, she, uh, if, if two matches her investment of three, she, gets an, uh, she doubles her money again, so she makes a net profit of three. And if the money is taken out, 
she loses three. Everyone all right with that? Let's do player two's payoffs. In the case in which he, in which he matches one, he makes a net profit of 150. In the case in which he just steals the one, he makes a net profit of one. And down here, in the case where he matches three, he makes a net profit of two. He gets five back that he'd invested three to start with. And here, if he just takes the money out, he makes a profit of three. All right? So this game is just uh, illustrated on the board. And for, for, for some of you, this is the first time you've seen a tree. But I'm going to claim it isn't, such a, it isn't such a complicated object. And we could spend a lot of time analyzing this in terms of uh, connected graphs and so on, but it isn't really worth it. It's just a tree. All right? OK, so let's just make sure we understand that the payoffs here represent player one's payoff and player two pay two's payoff, respectively. All right. So how do we analyze uh, what to do in these games? It's a good idea always to write up the tree, like it's a good idea to write up the matrix. But how to analyze what we should do? Well, before we do that, let me just grab the mic and find out from our, from our players what they should do. All right? All right, so where, are our, where, where was my first investor? All right, so uh, Justin, why, why did you put $1 in there? Well, if I put $1 in, he has an incentive to put $1 in too. If I put in $3, he's just going to take the money and run. All right, okay, so, so what's, what's Justin doing? Justin is looking forward, if you like. He's putting himself in player two's shoes. This was, uh, who was our, invest, uh, our receiver? Na uh, Nate, Nate, Nate's shoes. And anticipating what Nate's going to do. And as Justin said, if he puts in three, Nate's going to have an incentive to take the money and run. In fact, what would Nate have done? If, Nate, if, if, if three had been in the hat, what would you have done? Um, I like Justin, but I, I would have taken the money. All right, all right. Even though you know Justin, you'd have taken the money and, and disappeared somewhere. We don't quite know, right? Right? Is the same true for, for the other pair? So, so Katie, you, you also put one in. Is that your explanation as well? Same reasoning. Same reasoning, okay? So everyone figured out what was going on. And once again, we think probably, let's try, Stephen, if there'd been $3 in the hat, what would you have done? Uh, I would have taken it. We've taken it, all right? So, we, so we're basically getting what the, what, what's predicted here uh, out of the game. All right, and let's just see that more formally, that idea. So the idea here is that the players who move early on in the game should do something we've always talked about before. They should put themselves in the shoes of the other players, but here that takes the form of anticipation. Right? They're anticipating what players down the tree are going to do. Right? So the key idea here is anticipation. Right? What they're going to do is they're going to look forward down the tree, imagine themselves in the shoes of the later players, look at the incentives facing those later players, imagine that they uh, do the best they can, those later players do the best they can, and then walk backwards through the tree. So the key idea here is to look forward, look forward to the end of the tree, and work back. Look forward and work back. All right, and that's exactly, exactly the, the process that Katie and Justin describe themselves as doing. All right. All right. Now, in this tree, let's have a go at this. So let's imagine ourselves in Stephen or Nate's shoes, having found, as they did in fact, having found $1 in the hat. They then are making a choice between adding a dollar, which nets them $1.50, or taking the dollar, which nets them, uh, nets them one. One fifty is bigger than one, so we think they're going to go this way. All right, everyone happy with that? C 
Conversely, if they found themselves with $3 in the hat, uh, then if they add $3, if they match, they're going to get $2. They're going to net $2. And if they take the money out, they're going to get away with $3. All right, 3 seems bigger than 2, so we think they're going to go this way. Right, again, we're assuming that these are their real payoffs. Okay, so from player one's point of view, since player one can, knows that player two will observe the choice before making her own choice, and since player one can, can, put him, can put him or herself in player two's shoes and anticipate this choice, player one is essentially choosing between what? If she puts in zero, she gets zero. If she puts in one, she knows two will match, and she'll double her money and get one. And if she puts in three, then she knows player two will take the money and run, in which case our lender will have lost $3. So she's choosing between zero, one, and minus three, and she's going to choose one, right? which is exactly what happened in the game. All right, everyone happy with how we did that? Right? So this idea of starting at the last player, the player who moves last, solving out what they're going to do, and then working our way back through the tree has a name. The name for this is backward induction. And I apologize for the business school students in the room who've had this hammered into them too many times already, so I apologize for them in advance. All right, backward induction. Now, it turns out there's precisely one controversial thing about backward induction, which is whether you should say backward induction or backwards induction. So I'm going to leave the S off and call it backward induction, but uh, uh, it's up to you which, which you think the correct English is. All right? Okay. So since we've got this game here, let's talk about it a bit, this idea of the lender and the borrower. It's not an unimportant situation. It's, we, we've, you know, we've simplified it down to a very simple choice here, but it's a very basic choice out there in the real world. All right? And it's an important choice. After all, what keeps the economy running is the ability of lenders to lend money to businesses that then uh, uh, invest them profitably and are able to make returns. So this, un this underlies a whole bunch of, what, uh, of stuff going on in the economy. All right. So let's talk about this. And the first thing I want to talk about is I want to point out that there's a, there's, there's a, there's a problem here. There's a, there's a bad thing here, much like there was a bad thing in the very first class of the, of the semester. In the very first class of the semester, the bad thing was a prisoner's dilemma. Right? But here it's a little different, and let's, but let's focus on it a while. So the bad thing is we ended up here. Not a disaster. Right? The lender doubled her money. The borrower was able to go ahead with the project on a small scale and make some money. The bad thing, however, is that we would have liked to end up here. All right? Had we been able to have a large project funded with $3 and had the borrower uh, uh, repaid those dollars, so matched in effort or whatever it happens to be, then we'd end up at an outcome that is better not just for the lender, it's obviously better for the lender, but it's also better for the borrower. Everyone see that? Right. So the, the outcome we'd like to have reached gets, us, uh, gets the lender 3, where she's only getting 1 where we ended up, and it gets the borrower to where he's only getting 150, where we actually ended up. All right. Why is it that we were unable, so both of our pairs, both Justin and Nate and Katie and Stephen, why were we unable 
to get to here? What were we unable to get to here? Can you take us? What got us, what, what prevents us from getting to this, to this good outcome? Let's go back to, to, to Katie a second, see if we can, since, yeah, yeah, you go ahead. Oh, I'll, I'll come, it's all right. All right, so, so Katie was saying why she invested one. I picked on Justin before. So, so you know, we, here's this good outcome. It's better for you. It's better for Stephen, who's your, who's your borrower. Why aren't we getting to this 3-2 outcome? Because if I play three, um, him matching my money is dominated. All right. Strictly dominated. All right, so the problem here, the problem here is Katie would like to invest three if she knew that, in fact, Stephen was going to match. But she knows Stephen's not going to match, right? Stephen, in fact, is going to run off with the cash, all right? It's going to end up being spent at Starbucks or something, all right? And from Stephen's point of view, he would actually like to be able to borrow the $3. He would like to be able to end up at this 3-2 outcome as well. The problem is he knows, and Katie, he knows that Katie knows, and Katie knows that he knows that, in fact, he's going to run off with the cash. Is that right? Is that right? All right, so we're in a bit of a problem here. We'd like to get this good outcome, but incentives are preventing us from getting there. What do we call this kind of situation? What do we call this kind of problem? Anybody? No takers? All right, this is called moral hazard. This is called moral hazard. Hazard. How many of you have heard the term moral hazard before? All right, a number of people have heard it. So here we are, moral hazard. Here is the problem that the agent, in this case the, bor the borrower, has, in has incentives, will have incentives to do things that are not in the interests of the principal. All right? We're not careful, in the, as, as we w uh, for example, by giving too big a loan, the incentives of the borrower will be such that they will actually not be aligned with the incentives of the lender, and that will prove to be bad for the lender. But notice the existence of this moral hazard problem isn't only bad for the lender, it ends up being bad for the borrower as well. All right, let me give you another example. In insurance, there's a classic, probably the classic moral hazard problem. If an insurance company insures me uh, against having my car stolen, there's a moral hazard problem in that I might, if, if, I, if the car is fully insured, I might now have the incentive not to bother to lock my car or to leave it anywhere on the street in New Haven. All right? All right? Because I'm not bearing the cost. All right? So we need to be able to, the insurance company needs to worry about that in, in writing an insurance contract for me. And in practice, what the insurance company does is it forces me to take a deductible. It doesn't allow me full insurance. It makes sure that some of the cost of having a car stolen is going to fall on me. That's bad for me, by the way, because it means I can't get full insurance. All right? And notice that what happened here is rather similar. In this case, both the lender and the borrower would rather have a big project, a big loan, and have the, uh, have the agent pay back that loan. They'd prefer this 3-2 outcome. But they can't get there, and therefore, rather than having a full-scale project, Katie or Justin only offered the borrowers a small-scale project. All right? So the idea here in this example was, in this example, 
what happened was we kept the size of the project or the size of the loan. You could think of this as the project if they're borrowing something. Small to reduce the temptation to cheat. Okay, to reduce that temptation, not to rep not to repay the loan. All right. So these problems are all over the uh, you know all over society, but they're particularly prevalent in situations involving uh, lenders and borrowers. All right. So a good question is, how might we solve this problem? A lot of you are about to go out and try and borrow money to set up your projects to run your new version of Facebook, whatever. And a lot a lot more of you, as we said before, are going to end up loaning money perhaps someone else's money, probably, at least for a while. And we want to know how you might solve this moral hazard problem. We've seen one way to solve it. One way is simply to keep the size of the project small. What else could we do? Let me come down and try and have a bit of a discussion. What else could we do? So Stephen, what else could we do? You're, you're with a borrower. What else do you do? Like, uh, impose laws. We can impose laws, OK. So we can impose laws. Much like we talked about in Prisoner's Dilemma, we could regulate this market. There's going to be a little bit of a problem we're going to run into in regulating the law, uh, in, 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 uh, in using the law here. What's the problem we're going to run into here? Well, I mean, we do have laws that, that regulate borrowers and lenders. What's the, what's the law that regulates borrowers and lenders? Bankruptcy law, right? So we, right, we, ha we have law that, that uh, regulates, to some extent, what lenders and borrowers can do. Uh, one of the things we do in that law is we limit the degree to which we're allowed to punish the borrowers. Right? So bankruptcy law pretty much says we're going to put some limit on how much Katie can inflict pain on Stephen for running off with the lunch money. Right? Stephen can simply say, I can't repay, I'm bankrupt, and you know, he's more or less allowed to get a fresh start. So the law, the law would be good here, but there's limits to what we can do. Right? We could go back to the Dickensian world of throwing Stephen in jail for not, rep not repaying the loan, but it's tough. Right? There are downsides to that, it turns out. All right. So what else? What else could we do? Yeah, uh, I'm going to have to dive in there a little bit. So shout into the mic. Uh, venture capitalists can impose uh, restrictions on what the person can do with the money. All right. All right. So so he could try and say uh, there's only certain things you can do with the money. And for example, to make that credible, what he might have to do is to say, show me what you're going to do with the money. Show me the receipts. Right. Another thing you could say is. I will, uh, I will only give you uh, the, the money if you show me exactly how you're going to spend this. Right? That's, a good, that's a good solution. Notice that one, you, could, you could regard that as changing the order of play. Right? It's a little bit like saying, let's have the borrower have to move first. Let's have the borrower have to commit what their actions are going to be, how they're going to spend the money, before and show, you know, show the, 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 the contracts before the, uh, before the lender lends them the money. Right? And that's a good solution. But again, there are limitations to this solution. What are the limitations to that solution in the real world? Let's go back to all of you who are thinking about making millions with your new Facebook. What are the limitations to, to uh, having some contracts with the, with, the, with the bank, you know, with Chase, saying exactly how you're going to, uh, not only saying exactly how you're going to spend the money, but actually detailing it already with contracts ahead of time? What are the problems with that? Someone else? Someone's thinking of going into business here? Let me pick on somebody a second. So what's your name, sir? Kelly. 
Kelly. So what, 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 you know, imagine you have some project, you're gonna, you're gonna borrow some money from Chase or Mr. Swenson to set up this fund. Why might you worry about having everything written out and contractually ahead of time? Um, I mean, then it restricts your freedom on what your ideas are, I guess. Right, so one problem is just sheer lack of flexibility, all right? If, if in fact, the entrepreneur is not gonna, any, is, is not gonna be flexible in how they uh, actually run the project, there's no much point of being an entrepreneur in the first place. Right? There's a limit I mean, to how much control you want to give to the lender. The lender doesn't really want to run the project for you. Right? There's also simply a problem of timing. You simply, uh, it's simply not going to be possible to specify all the expenditures of a project up front. You're going to need some money to do some things ahead of time. All right? All right? So it's a good idea. Changing the order of play is a good idea, but there's going to be limitations to this. What else could you do as the lender? What else could you do? Thinking of lo loaning some money in here. Loaning some money to one of your classmates for some project. Let's try again. Something like loan money over time in stages and observe progress. Good, good. So one possibility, sorry. One possibility is to break the loan up and give it, in, sort of let it come in small installments. If you do well on the first installment, I'll give you a, a bigger installment next time. All right? And notice that that's a little bit like something we talked about the very first week. It's a little bit like taking this one-shot game and turning it into a repeated game. Right? It's, it's turning a one-shot interaction into a repeated interaction. And we'll come back and talk about repeated interactions later on in the course. Again, notice that there might be some limitations to this. I, mean, I, I think it's a good idea, and in general you should be trying to do this, but it could just be that to set up, for Nate to set up his new Facebook and for Steven to set up his new mousetrap factory, they just need a chunk of money at the beginning. There may be some limit to how little money you can give them at the beginning since they have to hire workers and set up the factory and make some big splash in advertising and so on and so forth. All right, so again, it's a good idea, but there may be limitations here. What else could you do? Let's have a look at the, at the numbers on the board. Right now, the numbers on the board say that if Steven's mousetrap project, was, were you the Facebook or the Steven's, the fact, if Steven's mousetrap project goes well, and it, it ends up being a big project with lots of money available, there are five units of money available in profit, right? Three plus two, right? And the, way we've, the way we've designed things so far, our lender, I gave you these payoffs in the game, the lender is gonna double her money, she's gonna get three, uh, six back from it to net three, and Steven's gonna get two. So the division of that five is three and two. But we don't have to divide the money like that. If you're a lender, you may want to think about how you divide up the spoils of a successful project. All right? So how else could you divide up those five dollars, that three plus two, in a way that might be better for everybody? Nate. Give the investor three dollars and one cent if they uh, do that other choice, and then take a little bit of a hit, but that way uh, you'll still have something that's pretty optimal to the other, the other choice that we came to before. All right, I'm guessing people didn't hear that, but that was right, so let me just say it, that's exactly right. So what you could do here is you could redesign the payoffs of this project in the event that it's successful. All right, what you could do is take these five units of profit, and instead of having three, two, which write in a different color, we could give the, the borrower, the entrepreneur, 3.1, leaving uh, 1.9 to uh, the lender. All right, so we could change the payoffs of this contract to be 1.9, 3.1 in the event of a big project. Why does that help? Because now our borrower, Nate or Stephen, 
Were they to end up with a hat with $3 in it, they now will find it in their interest to match the, the $3 and get 3.1 rather than 3. All right? All right? So what's this an example of? This, isn't, this, this idea of changing the contract to give the borrower incentives to repay, incentives not to shirk, incentives not to disappear with the cash, is an example of what's called incentive design. So the idea here is in a lot of businesses, incentives are not given by God. They're designed by the people who write the contract. All right? And if you're, in the, if you're the, the, uh, either the borrower or the lender, you should be thinking about writing a contract that's going to achieve the end that you want. Now notice in this particular example, exactly as Nate said, the lender is going to take a bit of a hit here. They're not going to get 100% return. But they're ending up doing better than they would have done by giving a small loan. Right? They've ended up getting 1.9 rather than 1. Right? They're getting 1.9 rather than 1. So in this particular example, it won't always be the case, but in this example, they're taking a smaller share, a smaller share of a larger pie. And sometimes a smaller share of a larger pie is bigger than a larger share of a smaller pie. Not always, but sometimes. Right? The reason the pie is larger is we're able now, in an incentive-compatible way, we're able to go ahead and have a large project. So in this example, the smaller share of the larger pie actually ended up being bigger than the larger share of the smaller pie. So a, sm a smaller share of a larger pie can be bigger than a large share of a small pie. Not always, of course. All right, this is just an example. All right. Now, let's just be a little bit careful here. All right, so in this particular example, even though this, this 1.9, this return that our lender is able to make by accepting a smaller share of a larger pie, even though it's a bigger absolute return, it's smaller in another sense. In what sense is it smaller? Let's be careful here. So I'm tempted to say, look, it's 1.9. 1.9 is bigger than 1. That's got to be a good thing. But since some of you actually are going to go out into investment banks, and you might be posed this question, let me just, not, let, let me just make sure we don't make a blunder that's going to spoil your interview. So what... What, what might you be worried about as an investment banker about this deal, about this, about this, this contract? Somebody else? Anybody else? Let's, uh, I'll, I'll come down again. Sorry. What might you be worried about? Who here is the, be honest. Who here is in, has been interviewing with either investment banks or venture capital firms or private equity firms? Raise your hands. Oh, come on. It's going to be more than that. All right. All right. There was a hand, where was the hand at the back? There was a hand way back here. No? Yeah? Can I, can, can, so what, what, what might be wrong with this project from your point of view? Actually, take, can, I, can, I, can I get the mic on that side? This gentleman here? What might be wrong with, 
with the project from your point of view? If you could actually just find three small projects, then you could still get 100% returns just by dividing it up. Good, good. You're going to get you're going to make lots of money for Morgan Stanley, or whatever it is. Good, good. Your, your name is Brian. Brian, right? So he's a good avatar, a good ad to hire Brian at Morgan Stanley. All right, all right. So what what Brian said was, it's true that you're making a bigger absolute return here. This is a bigger absolute return. But this return up here is a 100% return on your capital. The rate of return on capital is higher making a 100% return on an investment of one than making a 1.9 return on an investment of three. The rate of return is better in the, in, the, in the smaller case. So which is the right answer? Should we worry about the rate of return, the 100% rate of return, or should we worry about the absolute return? If you're in the business of investment banking, who thinks you should worry about the absolute return? Who thinks you should worry about the rate of return? Who thinks it depends? What does it depend on? What does it depend on? Yes, uh, keep, keep me from falling off this thing. What does it depend on? Somebody said it depends. What does it depend on? Depends is only a good compromise vote if you, you, know, you know what it depends on. Yeah, the gentleman here. Since an investment banking firm only has a limited amount of money to invest, you want to see if you can get a higher rate of return investing elsewhere. All right. So, so there's two. There's, I think you're on the right lines. There's two things to worry about. One is what is your supply of, of funds to invest, and the other is what's the other supply you're worried about as, a, as an investment banker or a venture capitalist firm or a private equity investor. What's the other supply coming your way? Yeah, the number of projects coming across your door, if you like, the demand, for your the demand for your cash, the supply of projects. All right? All right, so the, what we have to worry about here is what is the true opportunity cost of that money? Right? If there are very few projects out there, all right, then you basically just want to, want to go down the list of projects picking off absolute return. However, to the other extreme, if there's an infinite supply of projects all coming in, all of which will offer 100% return, then as our, our banker at the back told us, you should just go for three small projects rather than one large one. Right? But the question is, question of which is better, three it isn't as simple as saying, yes, we should always go for three small projects. There may not be three small projects out there that offer 100% return. All right, so what's going to matter here is what's the true opportunity cost of the capital, and that's going to depend on what projects are available to you. All right, this was just an example of incentive design. Just one example of incentive design. Let's talk about other examples of incentive design. Incentive design's been a lot in the news lately. Who, who else tends to have incentive contracts other than borrowers? Who else out there tends to have incentive contracts? It's a big topic in the, in, you know, in the news these days. So who has incentive incentives written into their contracts? Yeah, way over here. Let me, let me run over at the risk of blurring the camera. All right. So who, who else has incentives in their contracts? Managers. Managers, all right. So CEOs have huge incentive clauses in their contracts, all right, sometimes in the form of options. All right. Why do they have th those incentive clauses in their contract? Well, there's two interpretations of this. One interpretation is, it's just a bad thing, and they're just trying to screw the world. But there's a more, there's a more uh, um, moderate view of this. The more moderate view of this is that those incentive clauses in their contracts are attempts to align the interest of the managers with the interest of the shareholders, just as this contract is attempting to align the interest of the lender and the interest of the borrower. All right? 
So by managers, I took him to mean CEO, but what other kind of managers recently in the press, very recently, this weekend, have, ha have been talking about incentive contracts? Uh, somebody way, way over there, I'm gonna be caught on the wrong side as usual. Um, yeah, can I squeeze through? I'll try and squeeze through. Can I squeeze through? Sorry. All right, sorry. Here we go. Where was it? Where was, where, where, where was my answer to that question? Here we go. Managers of baseball teams. All right, so, so, so managers of sports teams also have incentive contracts these days, right? Incentives to, to achieve certain levels, all right? Here it's not quite clear to me exactly what's going on, right? We call those incentive contracts, but you might want to worry a little bit. I mean, do we really think that the manager has an incentive to lose otherwise, right? So, so part of what's going on with incentive contracts isn't actually incentive contracts. Part of it is about sharing the risk. Right, and particularly in the kind of contracts that have been written about over the weekend with Joe Torre's contract for the Yankees, which he turned down, is partly perhaps to give him incentives to try and win, but perhaps is more to do with sharing the risk among the general manager and the manager of the team if they don't make it to the playoffs. But all right, they're still incentive contracts. Now we see incentive contracts elsewhere, and we've seen them since the Middle Ages. Right, so in the Middle Ages, incentive contracts took a particular form, and the form was called, well, two things, Peace rates, put it up here. Peace rates and in agriculture, it took the form of sharecropping. What are peace rates? Somebody, what are peace rates? What are, what are peace rates? Anybody, anyone know anyone who's on peace rates? What is sharecropping? Somebody must be from a farming state. Yeah, there's somebody out here. The guy in orange. Yeah, out here. Yeah. Um, sharecropping is where the uh, landowner takes a portion of the um, of the farmer's crop at the end of the at the end Good. of the farming season. All right. So sharecropping is a, is a contract whereby part of the output of the farm goes to the landowner and part is kept by the farmer. All right. Going back to the Middle Ages, part of the output would stay with the peasants and part of it would go to the lord of the manor. Right? Peace rates are a similar idea. Rather than playing, paying wages to workers, just bundles of cash, the amount which they're paid depends on output. So peace rates would say, if you produce uh, uh, 17 yards of cloth, then you'll get paid uh, the, uh, the, the revenue that's derived from three of them, say. Right? Both of these forms of contracting are there partly to create incentives. They create incentives because they, they create the incentive for the farmer to increase yields, and they create incentives on the part of the worker to increase output. All right, so peace rates are a big part of the story. All right. Incentive designs are a pretty big topic, and we don't really have time to go into it much in this course, but it's worth mentioning that, in fact, uh, the Nobel Prize that was won last week by those three economists we talked about was partly about incentive design. Right? So it's regarded as an important enough topic for, uh, for uh, the, design, the, the, the design of incentives across society as a whole to have been worthy of, of winning the Nobel Prize. And my guess is there's another Nobel Prize that's going to come out in this same area in the next five or ten years. All right? Just to uh, make it clear, uh, you can have problems. You can, you can write incentives badly. 
It's classic story that you've all, you've all heard of, I'm sure, that in often in, uh, in the provision of public goods, let's say bridges or highways or tunnels, the incentives for the construction companies tend to be rather badly written. They, they're meant to have incentive clauses, but they never seem to quite get them right. It's easy to get these incentives wrong. And just to prove this doesn't just happen to management, let me just uh, tell a story against myself. So uh, a year ago, a year and a bit ago, I was uh, uh, picking fruit with my then three-year-old daughter, and I wanted to make sure that we got some fruit home to eat for dinner, and she didn't just eat all the fruit uh, as we picked it. These were raspberries. Uh, so I decided to have a rule that sounds efficient. I said, well, any, any item of fruit that gets picked that's uh, in good condition, we'll take it home for dinner, but if it's squashed, then we'll, and we'll eat it then and there while we're picking the fruit. All right, so my three-year-old proceeded to go along the, the uh, bushes of raspberries, picking the raspberry, turning around to me and saying, squashed, and putting it in her mouth. <laughs> All right? All right, squashed, squashed, squashed. All right, which shows that a three-year-old knows more than a professor about moral hazard at some level. <laughs> All right. All right. So one thing we can do is worry about incentive design in the design of the contract. There's another thing we can do here. What's the other thing we can do here? We're missing out something very basic. What is, what is it that's, that our borrower, Stephen and Nate, can do? Or put it more generally, for all of you, if you go out and start a company and you borrow some money to start your company when you leave Yale, what are you going to have to do? What's the borrower, what's the lender, what's the bank going to insist on? What are they going to insist on? Anybody? They're going to insist on collateral. They're going to insist on collateral. What is collateral? I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat charmed to see how few of you are going to end up borrowing money. But uh, uh, for those of you who haven't got trust funds, you're going to end up borrowing money. So uh, uh, what is collateral? Uh, that's, that's, uh, yeah, yes, what's collateral? You give someone the whole, you, you let the bank hold on to something. Right, you let the bank hold on to something in the event, in the event that you default on the loan. All right? You're going to let the bank hold on to something in the event that you default on the loan. Now, for most people here, what are they going to post as collateral? Let's assume that we can, we're back to our original contract here. We can't, we can't do this. We're back to our original case. What are most of you going to end up using as collateral if you borrow money? Yeah, everyone's saying a house. I'm guessing that for most of you, I'm not going to look around the room because I don't know how many trust fund, ba trust fund babies I've got in the room, but for most of you, it's going to be what? It's going to be your parents' house. <laughs> All right? All right? So why, why is it that your parents' house being posted as collateral is going to prevent you from disappearing to Mexico with the loan? Well, let's have a look at how that changes the payoffs. Now, if you take the money and run, you disappear to, to Mexico, but you end up with $1 minus a house here and $3 <laughs> minus a house there. Now, of course, we're relying here on you liking your parents enough not to mind about the fact that we're sleeping in the rain, but as long as that's the case, as long as that's the case, with all I think with high probability, you're now going to decide to return the loan, at least if you can. Is that right? Now, notice that the way in which this collateral worked, there's a subtlety to how this collateral works. You might think that the way in which collateral works is that now the lender feels safer because even if you end up defaulting on the loan, at least they get this house. All right? And that's true. There's some truth in that. But that's really not the key here. Right? Frankly, most bank lenders don't want your parents' house. 
right? I mean, your parents might have very nice houses, but this, you know, this isn't a good housing market right now, and they don't particularly want to see your parents on the street. The way in which this works is not, not so much that it gives an extra positive return to the lender. The way in which it works is it gives an extra negative return to the borrower. All right, so let's just do this backward induction again with the house in place. All right, so with this house in place, as before, you'll return the loan up here, but now, provided you like your parents enough, you would also return the loan here, because you'd prefer $2 to, your, to, to $3 minus your parents' house, in which case, you'll get a loan of three. All right? All right. So the way in which the collateral worked was by hurting you enough, in the, or in this case, hurting your parents enough, in the event of default, uh, in such a way as, as to change your behavior, but notice it helped you. So here's a subtlety coming in here. By issuing collateral, we actually lowered the payoff of the borrower at certain endpoints of the tree. We lowered the payoff of the borrower at certain endpoints of the tree. But as a consequence, we were able to end up at an outcome that was better for the borrower. Sometimes having lower payoffs can actually make you better off. And the reason it makes you better off is it changes the behavior of other players in the game in such a way as, it may, as may benefit you. In this example, by, in, by inducing the lender to give you a bigger loan. All right, so the way the collateral works is it lowers It lowers your payoffs if you do not repay. But it leads to you being better off. And the reason it makes you better off is it changes, it changes the choices of others, changes the choices of others in a way in a way that helps you. All right, we're going to see lots of examples of that in the next couple of days. All right. Now, collateral is an example. We talked about incentive design. Collateral is also an example of something larger. The larger thing is the idea of commitment. Collateral is a commitment strategy. It's a commitment strategy. It commits you to, to repaying the loan. All right. I want to give another example of a commitment strategy. Right, I, think, I think this idea of commitment is an important one, and we have just about time to do it. So I wanted to go completely away from the context of our uh, lender-borrower game a second and look somewhere else entirely. All right, so we get rid of this for now. I want to take us back to uh, 1066. What happened in 1066? What happened in 1066? I know, I know this is in America and no one gets an education anymore, but still, what happened in 1066? The, the Norman Conquest took place in 1066, right? So the, the Norman army invades from Normandy, led by William the Conqueror, and lands on the Sussex beaches at Hastings. All right? 
And what I want to imagine is a game involving the Norman army, or William the Conqueror in particular, and the Saxon army. All right, so here's the little game. So we're now in the, we're in the area of medieval military strategy. All right, and here is the game. Uh, we'll start with the Saxons here. The Normans have already invaded, so I guess, I guess the Normans have already moved. It, moved, moved. Uh, but uh, here's, the, uh, here's the, the, the Saxon army making a decision. They're deciding between uh, fighting and the important medieval military, military tactic known as running away. <laughs> and of course the Normans are going to know whether the Saxons are actually going to charge down the beach and attack them, and they are going to have to decide whether to fight or run away. All right, and let's put the payoffs in. Now leave some space below here. Leave some space down here on your notes. All right, let's put the payoffs in. So I'm going to put the Norman payoffs first and the Saxon payoffs second. Okay, Norman payoffs first, Saxon payoffs second. All right, so the payoffs are going to be like, like, like this. If both, uh, if both sides fight, a lot of people end up dead, and we'll call that 0-0. Zero, zero. If the Saxons fight and the Normans run away, the Saxons get two and the Normans get one, because at least they're alive. If the Saxons run away and the Normans fight, then uh, the uh, no uh, Normans get two and the Saxons get one. It just flips things around. And if both lots run away, then ultimately it's good for the Saxons. All right? So this is the game. All right, let's be careful. I put the Saxon payoff second. Put the Saxon payoff second. If we analyze this game by backward induction, we can see that the Normans are in trouble. Why are the Normans in trouble? Because if they are attacked by the Saxons, then fighting yields zero and running away yields one, so they're going to run away. And conversely, if the Saxons run away, then in fact, the Normans will stay and fight, because it's easy to stay and fight against people who are running away. Even I can do that. <laughs> All right? So, that's, uh, so they're going to go for two rather than one. But now the Saxons face this choice. They know that if they attack the Normans, the Normans will run away, and the Saxons will get two. But if the Saxons run away, then the Normans will stay and fight, and the Saxons will only get one. So the Saxons are going to end up fighting. All right? All right everyone, everyone see how we did the backward induction? So this is not a good situation if you happen to be the Norman commander, if you're the guy who led these troops across the channel. All right? So what did William the Conqueror do? He burnt his ships, all right? So let's now make this game a little bit, bit more like the real historical situation. Here's a move that William the Conqueror, the king of the, the, of the Normans, can do. He can either not burn his ships, or he can burn them. If he burns them, then the game is rather different. Once again, the Saxons can decide whether to fight or run away, but now the Normans really don't have any choice. They have to stay and fight, because swimming back to France wearing armor is difficult. All right, so the payoffs become 0-0 zero, zero and 2-1 as before. All right, so we know now that the Normans are going to stay and fight. That's all that's available to them. I've, I've put it that they don't even have the option of, of running away. If you want, you could put running away yields them you know, minus infinity or whatever it is to get drowned. All right? So now, it, if the Saxons 
if, if the Normans have burnt the boats, the Saxons know that if they fight, the Saxons will get zero. If they run away, they'll get minus one. So now they'll run away. And then from, from William the Conqueror's point of view, what's he choosing between? He knows that if he doesn't burn his boats, the Saxons will fight and his troops will run away. But if he does burn his boats, the Saxons will run away and his troops will fight. So he wants to burn his boats. Right, everyone okay with the example? All right. Now this is probably the classic example of a commitment strategy. Like William the Conqueror in this example, or, or Cortez in perhaps the more famous example, burn the boats to get rid of some strategies, to get rid of some choices altogether. And you might think, how can, get ridding, how can getting rid of choices make me better off? And the reason in a game, particularly in a sequential game, but in the game generally, the reason getting rid of choices can make me better off is it changes the behavior of people on the other side of the game in such a way as benefits me. In this particular example, it makes the other side less likely to fight. All right, so once again, this is a commitment. It's a commitment. And the, the way it works is, it, this example of a commitment is actually to have fewer, to have fewer options. To have fewer options. And it changes, it changes the behavior of others. If it didn't change the behavior of others, it wouldn't be worth doing. All right. So let's just talk about this a little bit more. There's another famous example of a military commitment strategy uh, that occurs in the movie Dr. Strangelove. How many of you have seen the movie Dr. Strangelove? How many have not seen the movie Dr. Strangelove? All right, good homework exercise for the weekend. Rent the movie Dr. Strangelove. Great, it's a very good movie. All right, Stanley Kubrick, I think. All right, so in, the doc in Dr. Strangelove, there's a famous commitment strategy. What is the famous commitment strategy in Dr. Strangelove? Somebody, let's get a, let's get a mic. Uh, Ali, can we get a mic down here? That, wait, there's, there's one on the way. The guy in white, there you go, there you go, yep, there you go. Great. They um, lose radio contact with the base, which means that they're going to end up dropping the bomb. All right, that's true. I was thinking more, uh, more deliberate. What was the, what's the more deliberate? The guy in red, uh, uh, what, what are there? somebody in red here? Here we go. Try. The Soviets construct a doomsday device, so if they're attacked, they automatically launch their, all of their nuclear weapons. Good, good. So the worry that the Soviets have is they think the Americans might attack them, and they worry that the Americans might attack them thinking that they won't retaliate because it won't, they won't really have any incentive to retaliate once their cities are destroyed. So they construct a device they call the doomsday device that will automatically launch nuclear missiles back on the Americans if the Russians are attacked. All right, it's a, commitment, it's a commitment device to make it credible that they will actually respond were they, uh, were they to be attacked by the crazy Americans. All right? So there's a mistake, however, that the Russians make. What is the mistake that the Russians make? What's the mistake the Russians make? Uh, uh, tell you what we're here. There's the guy in the Yale sweatshirt here. They don't tell anyone about the machine. Right. They don't tell the Americans that they've built the doomsday device. All right? So this is really an important idea hidden in what's really a great movie. Commitment strategies are a good idea. They can make things credible. 
But the only reason that having fewer strategies is good for you is because it changes the behavior on the other side. In this case, it changes the behavior of the Saxons. It doesn't work if the other side doesn't know about it. Right? It's crucial that the other side knows. So the other players must, must know. All right? Just to hammer this home, notice that the expression in the English language is burning your boats. It's not going over to your boats and quietly drilling a little hole in them. <laughs> right? It's burning your boats. You want the other side to see this big bonfire on the beach and to know that the boats are no longer available. Right? Just as in Dr. Strangelove, it's crucial, and it's a terrible mistake, for the Russians not to tell the Americans that they've built this machine. All right? All right? So knowledge here is crucial, knowledge of the other side. Now, I should just complete the history of this. This didn't work in the case of the Battle of Hastings. The Saxons attacked anyway, and it just turned, you know, there was a big bloodbath, and the Normans really only won this battle because somebody got a lucky, lucky shot and hit, the, hit, hit King Harold in the eye. So actually, you know, this is a good story, but didn't they, as a, as a military tactic, not, a, not actually a true story. I do that, I'm adding that in, because otherwise I'm gonna get hundreds of letters from people who watch, who watch the video. All right. Now, we've had a bunch of lessons today, but I'm not done. I want to play one more game. Before I do, though, I want to make sure you understand. We're going to play another game, so everybody stay put. I want to make sure that there's a bunch of lessons on the board, and I want you to understand what's important and what's more important. Everything's important, but some things are more important. All right? So the idea of commitment is an important idea, and the idea of incentive design is an important idea, but there's one idea here that is more important than anything else. And that idea is backward induction. All right, put a little sun around it, okay? How important is backward induction? Backward induction is the most important thing I'm gonna teach you in the second half of the, sem of the semester. It's probably the most important thing I'm gonna teach you in the whole semester, and it may be the most important thing you're gonna learn at Yale, <laughs> all right? How it, it's the answer to all questions. If I ask you a question, and as happens from time to time, you've been sleeping in class, and you wake up startled, because I've now asked you a question, and that camera is on you, right, and you don't know what the question is, then the answer is backward induction. <laughs> All right? Now, I'm stressing this because six weeks from now, whatever it is, in December, there's going to be a final exam, and I guarantee now that there will be a question on the final exam that involves backward induction, and I guarantee that at least one person in the room will forget to solve it by backward induction. All right, so are you going to use backward induction on the final exam? Yes, yes? you're all going to remember it. Okay, okay, good. Now we'll play one more game, just for fun. All right. Oh, before we play one more game, I'll do one other thing. Sorry, one other thing before we play one more game. I apologize. Um, the one other thing I want to do here is uh, uh, I put up a tree here, but I forgot to tell you anything about the tree. This was a tree, and I would, be, I would be remiss if I didn't tell you a few things about trees. So there's a certain amount of jargon that goes along with trees, and I want you to be able to read the textbook and know what that jargon is. So these spots, these dots in the tree, these things are called nodes. All right, they're called nodes. And in fact, the end points of the tree, where the payoffs are, these are also called nodes, but they're called end nodes. 
All right? And these branches in the tree, the branches, here they are, the branches are called edges. All right, so a tree consists of nodes, edges, and these missing, end no missing dots are the end nodes. The end nodes are associated with payoffs. Do we need to write that? That's obvious, right? They're associated with payoffs. And every other node belongs to somebody whose, whose, whose turn it is to make a decision at that node. All right? So these other nodes, the ones that aren't end nodes, are called decision nodes. And it's perfectly possible, for example, in our, in our Norman Conquest game, for somebody to have several nodes. Somebody could move once and then later on in the game. There may also be nodes that are never reached in a game. One last piece of jargon, a route through a tree from the beginning to an end is called a path. A path a way of getting through the tree from the beginning to the end. So we'll have a pop quiz on that jargon later, and now let's play the last game I want to play. We've got 10 minutes, right? OK, everyone understand the jargon? I want to play a game now, all right? So the game we're going to play is a game we're going to call the Hungry Lion Game. All right, it's the Hungry Lion Game. And what I'm going to do is, I'm going to pick on a, a, a row of the class. Actually, I'm going to pick on this row of the class. All right? And this row of the class, everyone can see this row? Right there, you can lean over the balcony. This row of the class, we're going to imagine that everybody in this row is a lion. All right? They're all, do they all look like lions? Not much, but no, no, pretend they're lions, right? Suspension of disbelief. All right? They're all lions, and they're all hungry. Right? Except, except for one person, who's this guy at the end, whose name is... Alex. So Alex is a sheep. <laughs> Alex has the had the misfortune of wandering into this pack of pride, pride of lions, and is liable to get eaten because they're hungry. All right? However, one thing stands between Alex, Alex the sheep, and being eaten. The one thing that stands between him and being eaten is that in lion society, the only lion who is allowed to eat the sheep is the head lion, the big lion, whose name is Ryan. Ryan, right? Ryan is the head lion here. Right? Only Ryan can eat Alex the sheep. No other lion can eat Alex the sheep. All right? Now, there's a catch if, if, if Ryan eats Alex, if Ryan the lion eats Alex the sheep. The catch is that if Ryan the lion eats Alex the sheep, then Ryan the lion will fall into a postperannual stupor, fall asleep, at which point the second largest lion, whose name is Chris, Chris can eat Ryan. <laughs> and notice, Chris can never eat the sheep. He can only ever eat the lion, the, the, the big lion, and only then if the lion has eaten the sheep and falls asleep. This is very strict, right? Lion society is very hierarchical, like England. All right? <laughs> right? Right. If, however, Ryan the lion eats Alex the sheep and is then eaten, falls asleep and is then eaten by Chris the lion, then and only then he will fall into a stupor, when it, at which point he can be eaten by Isabella. Isabella, who's the third largest lion, and so on. Ever understand the game? All right, no questions, no talking among yourselves. Write down what you would do if you were our key decision maker, who, who is Ryan, uh, Ryan the lion. But before we write it down, uh, can I get Alex to stand up a second? Stand up. All right, camera on him, right? This is, this is the menu. <laughs> all right, all right, thank you. All right, all right. 
Okay, so you have to write down in your notepad whether you, Ryan the lion, in, in Ryan's sh um, shoes or paws or whatever, whether you would eat Alex the sheep. Everyone written something down? All right, now let's, let's ask Ryan the lion what he's going to do. So Ryan, are you going to eat Alex the sheep? No. He says no, he's not going to eat. Why, why not? Shout out, shout out. Then I'd be eaten as well. Then he'd be eaten. Well, let's see if he would have been eaten. So had he eaten Alex the sheep, then he would have fallen asleep, and then he'd have been in danger of being eaten by Chris. By Chris. Chris, would you have eaten Ryan? No. Ah, so he wouldn't have eaten him, in fact. In fact, it looks like Ryan would have got a free lunch, right? There are no free lunches in economics. Something's wrong. All right, all right. Uh, and wh why is Chris worried about it? Chris is worried about it because Chris, because Chris is worried about Isabella. Isabella eating him. And what am I doing wrong? What's wrong with this analysis? By the way, before we say what's wrong, how many of you, how many of you in Ryan's shoes would have eaten the, the sheep? And how many of you would not have eaten the sheep? Okay, what am I doing wrong? I'm in totally the wrong part of the room. I shouldn't be here at all, right? I shouldn't be at all in this part of the classroom. I can't get round. Wait a second. Excuse me? All right, I should be. Which row was my, were my lions? Where's my lion row? Okay, we go. I should be way over here with the baby lion, whose name is Ege. Ege. Yeah. So Ege is a little baby lion, very cute. But Ege, if he gets a chance to eat, is going to eat. Why is he going to eat? Because there's, no there's no one to eat him. All right. So if Ege gets the chance to eat the second the second babyest lion, whose name is John. John. Then Ege will eat. All right. So if John gets a chance to eat Ben. Ben, is John going to eat Ben? John, are you going to eat Ben? No. No, John's not going to eat Ben because John knows he'll get eaten by Ege. So Ben, if you get a chance to eat... Vidor. Vidor, are you going to eat, are you going to eat Vidor? Yeah. Wait a second, wait a second. So we, we just argued that, that if you eat, then the second largest lion whose name was... John. John is not going to eat you. Sorry, yeah. Yes, okay, so we, have, we know the littlest lion's going to eat, so the second littlest lion is not going to eat, so the third littlest lion can eat safely, so the fourth littlest lion should not eat, right? So the fifth littlest lion should eat. We've got eat, not eat, eat, not eat, eat. Eat, not eat, 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 eat. Is that right? Is that right? So in fact, you should have eaten him. But the more important point is, how should we have analyzed this game? What should we have used? Backward induction. How many of you used backward induction? Be honest. How many of you? So what's the point here? The point, the point is this. Five minutes ago, I said the most important thing you'll ever learn at Yale is backward induction. Then I distracted you with some fairly irrelevant nonsense. <laughs> and five minutes later, nobody used backward induction. So the main lesson from today, the lesson we're going to pick up on Wednesday, is to use something. What are we going to use? All right, we'll see you on Wednesday. <laughs>